time. Not sure what makes it a special welcome other than the fact that I put the word special in front of it, but um, special welcome to you guys. Uh, glad that you're here. Um, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians together, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And uh, we've been looking there in that letter of Paul since January, and we're going to continue that. Uh, Mark continued his series in the Gospel of Mark. I do not have the uh, fortune of having a Bible book named after me, so I had to go with 2 Corinthians. But Mark did Mark last week. And uh, if you weren't here, I encourage you to go to our website, uh, ChristCentral.ca, and give that message uh, listen. It was a great message. God really used it to stir our faith. And so uh, I encourage you to go back and listen to that one if you weren't here last week where Mark reminded us that even though we have huge needs and limited resources, we also have... What, Betty? She wasn't here. Oh. We also have God with us, right? And so we have huge needs, we have limited resources, but we have God. All right, so go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it contains... Uh, some of the more popular verses in the whole book, and, uh, and it really packs a punch. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to look at uh, beginning at verse 13. Uh, it's one of my, uh, the whole chapter of chapter 4 is, is one of my more favorite chapters in the whole Bible, and, uh, and it just keeps going here. Uh, we've already seen that as we looked at the jars of clay verse, and and from there, and so we're going to continue and look at the last half here of, of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So Father, as we come to your word, uh, we just pray that your spirit would work. Uh, we are completely dependent on you uh, to not only apply your word to our lives, but to even understand what your word is saying to us. And so we pray that you would come by your spirit now. You'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand uh, your word for us this morning. We pray that your spirit would come and use your word to change us, to make us more into your image, to raise our faith, to encourage us, to lift our heads, to make us more mature in you. So come and do what only you can do through your word, by your spirit, we pray. Amen. All right, 2 Corinthians 4, uh, beginning in verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The things that are unseen are eternal. Notice beginning in verse 16, Paul says, we do not lose heart. So, we do not lose heart. If you're on the ball, you remember that when we began chapter 4, uh, way back in verse 1, Paul said the very same thing. He said, we do not lose heart. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, 
we do not lose heart. So just a few verses later, he repeats himself. He feels the need to go back and say, listen, we do not lose heart. Remember what I said just a few minutes ago. We do not lose heart. And so we need to take note of that. For those of us who are prone to think of the Christian life as a life of comfort and a life of ease, we should take note of the fact that Paul has just reminded us in 16 verses twice to not lose heart. Translation or interpretation being, when we live the Christian life, we are prone to lose heart. Right? If somebody reminds you of something twice in a few minutes, it means that the temptation to do that is real and powerful. And so the temptation to lose heart as we walk the Christian life is real and it's powerful. One of our kids has a temptation to always be chewing things and putting them in their mouth and chewing them. So if they're wearing a necklace, they've always got the necklace up and chewing it. So Karen and I have to come in and we have to bring encouragement to not do that because it is a real and powerful temptation, right? Does that make sense? So we're not always going around saying, hey, don't stick your fingers in your eyes, right? Because that's not a real powerful temptation <laughs> for her, right? So we don't feel the need to do that. Paul sees us walking our Christian life, and in just 16 verses, he feels the need to say, do not lose heart, do not lose heart, do not lose heart, do not lose heart, right? Because it's a real and powerful temptation for us as we're following Christ on mission with Him. So whether it's serving on move team or whether it's getting up early for Wednesday morning prayer or me getting up here to preach, whatever it might be, we very quickly can lose heart in that. We can very quickly lose sight of the point of it all. Our courage and our confidence is washed away. We stop believing that we can succeed in what God has called us to. You feel that. I feel that. Nobody seemed to give me any sort of confirmation that they feel that, so maybe it's just me. That There we go. Thank you, Betty. We feel that. In fact, getting ready for this week, it didn't come as much surprise that I feel that even more, that beginning to lose heart in what God's called us to. It's both a real and powerful temptation as we follow God. The great thing about preaching is that I get to hear myself too while I preach, so we do not lose heart. So we saw last time, two weeks ago, we saw the high cost of discipleship, that uh, mission always requires sacrifice, that suffering will always be a part of following Christ. It will always require a death of some sort, a dying to ourselves. And how we view suffering determines to what extent God is able to use us in that, to see His kingdom built. So Paul wants us to see that. But Paul is also relentless in showing us what the payoff is. As much as there is sacrifice, he also wants us to see that there's even a greater reward in following Jesus. There's an even greater reward in following God in the midst of suffering. And we saw some of those uh, last week, last time. 
He's already given us many reasons. Uh, when we looked from, from seven on, uh, he's already showed us that his power is displayed through our weakness. He's already showed us his, uh, his sustaining presence with us when we looked at those four lines that we're squeezed but we're not squashed and we're knocked down but we're not knocked out, right? We might be confused but we're not in despair. All those things, it's God's sustaining presence with us. We also looked that even though his death is at work in us, Paul says that Jesus' life is also at work in us. And so as we follow Christ in that, that dying to ourselves, Christ's life is exalted in me. And then at the very end, we looked at how not only is Christ's life exalted in me, but as we die to ourselves, those that we serve also see life rise up in them. That's what he says in verse 12. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So as Paul embraces sacrifice and suffering to fulfill what God has called him to, then he sees life rise up in the church's that he's serving. And so it's, it strengthens the church as well. So he's already given us many reasons for, do, for embracing this life, what we called the cruciform life last time, this dying to ourselves, uh, embracing sacrifice, embracing or at least not running from a life of suffering and following Christ in that. And now he wants to continue uh, just show it. He wants to stack more on top of those four, and he gives us four more reasons. But this time, he points us to the future. This time, he's pointing our focus ahead. So in verse 13 to the end of the chapter, Paul is pointing us to the future. He wants us to look at what lies ahead tomorrow so that we don't lose heart today. All right? He wants to point us to what lies ahead tomorrow so that we don't lose heart in the here and now. For a few years in my early 20s, I think it was, that I worked uh, uh, manufacturing log homes. So I wasn't out on, on the site building the log home. I was in a kind of like a plant, I guess. And we just manufactured basically wooden Lego bricks that stuck together to make a house. That would be the easiest way to explain it. And so it's hard work. I would just uh, feed uh, eight foot six by six into a planer all day and uh, it's not very exciting work and uh, my first day I think we started at 7:30. I got off at 4:30. I went to bed I woke up at 9:30, ate supper and went back to bed again I had just come from two years of sitting at a desk uh, learning graphic design and my whole world was crumbling down and my <laughs> muscles hadn't moved I was really good at clicking a mouse but not so much at feeding logs into a planer. Anyway, uh, where was I going with this? Anyway, sitting in that type of work environment, and many of you work in that type of work environment. Great group of guys, loved the guys. It was about six or seven of us, and every 10, 15, uh, 12 o'clock, 2.45, we gathered in this little room. We drank coffee. A 15-minute break usually stretched on about 25 minutes or so, if we're honest. But we just sat around, and the main talk was about the weekend, right? The main talk was about the weekend. Monday and Tuesday was about the weekend past. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday was about the weekend coming. 
And the weekend for them was a lot of excitement because it usually meant uh, hunting, drinking beer, and watching NASCAR. That's just who they were, different strokes for different folks. My apologies for any NASCAR fans in attendance. You can send your complaints to mark.rushworth at christcentral.ca. But in that type of atmosphere, everybody's working for the weekend, right? And it's not a, very for, it's not a foreign concept to us in the workplace, and, but sometimes we can kind of see it as a, as a worldly thing. But in fact, the principle of that is something I think we need to take on a bit more in our Christian life. Because to endure, and not only endure, but to serve with passion and joy today, we need to fix our eyes on what lies ahead. That was a monotonous job. And you just got up, and you just were kind of, and there's another guy to drill press going, there's another guy just measuring, right? You needed something to get through the day, and they fixed their eyes on the weekend. And so in the same way, the Christian life can be hard. The Christian life can involve hardship. It can involve suffering. It can involve things that aren't very pleasant. It can sometimes maybe get even monotonous. You fix your eyes on what lies ahead. So working for the weekend, the principle of it isn't that bad of a thing. And as Christians, we often lose heart in the journey because we lose sight of the destination. And we have a great destination. And what God has for us is so much greater than just watching Dale Earnhardt Jr. go around in a circle 400 times. So if this morning you're beginning to lose heart in the midst of your struggle in following Christ, check your sight lines. It may be that you've lost focus of the future. It may be that you've lost focus of the future. Most of the time when we think about the future, we think about what our life will be like in 10 years, in 20 years, what uh, graduated life will be like, what work life will be like, what married life will be like, or what are our grandkids going to be like, or we think about the future of our world, you know, what's the state of our world in 40 years, and what technology is like, and what science is like, and all this stuff, right? That's not exactly what we're talking about. As great as that is, when I say we need to focus on the future, we're not talking about hover cars and whatever the iPhone 35 will be like. <laughs> whether it can transmit smell, I don't know. <laughs> or it's like the things from Star Wars where the little guy pops up and talks to me. So that's not what we're talking about when we talk about the focus on the future. Paul wants us to see some big, weighty truths that he wants us to focus on, all right? And he wants to stack those on top of the four he's already showed us so that our hearts become so steadfast in following God that no amount of suffering or sacrifice can shake us from that. All right? So the first one, look at verse 14. He wants to show us our future resurrection. He says, Knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. So Paul says, 
I'm going to be raised from the dead. You're going to be raised from the dead. We're going to join Jesus who's already been raised from the dead. His confidence in His own resurrection is firmly put on the fact that Jesus has already been raised from the dead. Jesus has gone before. So in that sense, Jesus is just one step ahead of you and I. He's been resurrected. You and I will be resurrected. <laughs> uh, yes, woo. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul said, For as in Adam all die, so as in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So just as sure as Jesus was raised to new life, you will be raised to new life. I think you just need to let that sink in just for a minute. Just let that sink in just for a minute. The truth is that unless Jesus comes back, you will die. You will die. Just let that sink in for a minute. And the truth is that after you die, you will not stay dead. You will raise again. You will be resurrected to new life, to never die again. So often we think about the resurrection as a vague, fuzzy event that has no relevance for our lives today. And so often, for many of us, the contemplation of retirement trumps the contemplation of resurrection. And we spend all our time and our energy and our focus on the last 20 years of our life and providing as much comfort and as much ease and as much wealth and as much health as we can pack into those last 20 years and that becomes our focus instead of the millions of millions of millions of years that will follow those 20. What are we doing? You will be raised to eternal life and it's a life that does not end. It makes us a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? We kind of want to squirm a bit out of it. The fact is, your resurrection has a lot of influence on how you live today. How you view the resurrection has a lot of influence on how you live today. Are we more focused on our retirement or on our resurrection. Look at verse 15. Paul says, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So secondly, Paul also points us to future worship. A future worship. He was gripped by the desire to see more and more people experience the grace of God and rise in passionate worship and thanksgiving. So for Paul, the math, 
was simple. The more people that come to Jesus through His apostolic ministry, the more people who will worship God and give Him thanks, and the more people who will be around the throne worshiping Him forever. And Paul was gripped by that vision of the future worship of God. More and more people giving Him thanks for all eternity. Mark already touched on that and what he brought during worship. And Paul was gripped by that to see people of every nation, tribe, language gathered to worship Jesus because He's worthy. Thirdly, Paul points us to a future transformation. In 16, he says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So our outer man, this jar of clay, as Paul has called it earlier, is wasting away, it's breaking down. And so our natural reaction is to think, preservation, hold on, bring in, got to preserve, we can't let this thing waste away. And certainly not to take on anything that might speed up the process. And Paul is becoming an old man himself. And so conventional wisdom is, Paul, what in the world are you doing getting shipwrecked and stoned? You're an old man and you're getting stoned by people because you're preaching the gospel. Let's leave that to the Timothys, whoever's coming along after you, and just tuck in, pull in, draw everything in, and preserve and hang on to the end. But Paul's like, you're not. You're just thinking about the outer self. You're just thinking about the utter, outer decimation and you're not seeing the inner renewal of what Jesus is doing in my life. No matter what suffering lies ahead for me, I know that there's also an accompanying renewal. So he sees a future transformation. And then in verse 17, it's kind of the, the capstone of it all. In verse 17, he says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so he also has his eyes firmly fixed on a future glory. On a future glory. This is kind of his big crescendo. Paul isn't being fake here when he talks about having a light momentary affliction. You can read later in chapter 11 of what all that he's gone through in his apostolic ministry. He's not telling us just to say, oh, you know, it's a light and momentary affliction and just kind of ignore it all. He's not being, you know, Mr. Happy McPlastic Christian. He's seeing what his life involves and he's saying this is a light and momentary affliction. He's not just going around with a fake smile, ignoring the suffering, pretending everything is rosy. His life was hard. He endured suffering that when I read his list, I'm not sure if I would have endured. And yet he says, it is momentary. He doesn't mean that it only lasts a few seconds. He means that no matter how long the dur duration of it might be, it can only last a lifetime. That's all it can last. And then it will end. Forever. And then a million millenniums without that suffering. He says that the affliction is light. No matter how much the weight of this suffering bears down on us, 
no matter how much it feels like we'll be crushed under it in comparison to what is coming, it is as if it is nothing. It is light. You picture a big set of scales here. All right, we got a big set of scales like that, right? And then we stack up all of these all of this sound equipment, these speakers, that box, whatever that is, and that one, okay? And it would be a significant weight, right? I've picked up one of those. I'm no Dave Laver, okay? And there's a lot of weight there, and I could stand on the other end, and I could probably jump, and it wouldn't even move. And we'd see the scales smash down under the weight, right? And we'd say, woof, that's heavy. But then on the other end, if we just took Texas and set Texas on the other side, it wouldn't even matter if those speakers were there. And you say, Brent, that's a stupid comparison. How can you compare sound equipment to a southern state? That doesn't make sense. It's not even a comparison. Paul says it's not even a comparison, right? He says what you're going through now, this light and momentary affliction, is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory that does not compare. It doesn't compare. It doesn't make much difference if the speakers are there or not when you've got Texas sitting on the other side, right? It's beyond all comparison. And so he's not diminishing the significance of the weight of your suffering. He's pointing you to a greater weight, a greater weight of glory that awaits you. So what is coming to Paul is not momentary, but eternal it's not light, but weighty. It's not affliction, but glory. And it's beyond all comparison. Eye has not seen nor ear heard what God has prepared for those who love Him. You might endure some very hard things in this life, but don't lose heart in following hard after Christ. Because there is coming a time when even that suffering might take your life, but that's all it can do. And then you will have eternity in the presence of Jesus where there is fullness of joy and right hand, at his right hand, pleasures forevermore where he will make an end to all pain and all sadness. There won't even be an opportunity to shed tears unless it's tears of joy in the fact that you don't have a son but you have just the glory of God to bask in. That's the future that the Bible shows us is ours. That was bought for us, not by our good works, but by the precious blood of Jesus. It is stamped, it is sealed, it is yours if you are in Christ. And so no matter what you might face, it is a light and momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits you. We need to grab hold of that as a church. So we do not lose heart. And then notice Paul's words that on top of it all, he tells us that these afflictions we experience are actually at work. The afflictions don't just precede the glory, they produce the glory. They produce the glory. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So no wonder Paul says, do not lose heart.
do not lose heart in your following after Jesus. We do not lose heart because we have a future resurrection that awaits us. We do not lose heart because God is worthy of a future worship from every nation, tribe, peoples, and languages. We do not lose heart because we have a future transformation that even though our outer man is wasting away, we are simultaneously being renewed until one day we know as we are known, we are transformed completely into the image of Jesus. And we do not lose heart because this affliction we are experiencing is working to produce a glory for us that will blow our minds so that even the most worst suffering that we can endure here on this earth in comparison will be like a Sunday afternoon with a headache because it doesn't compare to the greatness of the glory that awaits you. And so we need to see that. We need to see that. If you're losing heart this morning, you need to see that. If you're becoming discouraged in your walk with God, you need to see that. If you're losing courage and losing confidence in what God's calling you to, you feel like throwing in the towel, you feel like losing heart, you need to see that this morning. Last time, I shared the story of John Getty, the PEI pastor who gave his life serving the people of Vanuatu for 24 years in the South Pacific. And it's an inspiring story. We read stories like that and it, it raises our faith. It kind of stirs us to see a man give himself to God like that and see God work through him. But the danger when we see a story like that is that it can seem so far away and unrelated and disconnected from the life that we live. Most of us will never step foot on a South Pacific island, let alone with the desire to uh, preach the gospel with the threat of death at any minute. It seems very far away and disconnected from us. So does that mean that these verses are only true for the John Gettys of the world? Is that what it means? No, it doesn't. It's true for us today. And so that's why this morning I wanted to ask a friend of mine to come and share her story so that you can see that these verses are true, not just for the John Gettys, although some of you might follow in John Gettys' path, but it's true for each and every one of us today. We, Karen and I first met Steve, well, I think Karen met them a while ago, but Steve and Jerusha Borden, uh, they joined our church in the spring of 2016, I think, somewhere in there, uh, shortly after they joined our life group, and it's been a great privilege and honor to have them as part of our life group and just getting to know them over the last year and a half. And so when I knew this verse was coming up back in June, I think it was, I said, Jerusha, I'd be honored if you would share your story of this light and momentary affliction preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. And thankfully, she said yes. And so, Jerusha, if you wouldn't mind coming up and, uh, and sharing a bit. I'm just going to... Is it working? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to sit down. Um, 
because I'm having a, a pain day, so it doesn't feel so good to stand. So the best way to tell my story is to start back at the beginning. Um, I was born to my parents, Peter and Janice, and I have an older brother, Aaron, who's 18 months older than me. And we lived happily together in our townhouse in Toronto until my parents were like, mm, this isn't the greatest place to raise kids. So we moved <laughs> to um, a little town close to Toronto called Newmarket, which is now a bustling city and part of the GTA. And we had a beautiful house there where lots of memories were made. Some of the best were when my brother and sister, Jessica and Raymond, were born. So there's four kids in my family. Um, and Jessica and Raymond are two, or sorry, seven and five years younger than me. So it's kind of like when we were growing up, we had two sets of kids, you know. Aaron and I were older, they were younger. So the only significant amount of time that I remember spending with them was when we were on, on our summer vacation. And my grandparents had a cottage in Muskoka. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's like cottage country in Ontario. Um, and if I think back on my childhood, those were like the best memories, where we were swimming all the time, and we were going to the used bookstore, because <laughs> I like to read, and um, singing around our campfire. You know, in your childhood, sometimes you have magical memories, and those were my magical memories. But sometimes, even those kind of memories can be clouded with not so pleasant ones. And so for me, life began changing right around the time that I hit puberty, which it does for every kid. <laughs> but for me, it was significantly different. Strange things started happening to my body, and my parents were like, what is going on? So they were really concerned about rapid weight gain, and they consulted several doctors, most of which just told my parents that I had to go on a diet. And so I pretty much tried every diet known to man <laughs> to deal with unwanted fat, um, but nothing helped. So all of a sudden, other kids started noticing, and it was right around the years of middle school when the scarring comments started coming. And I wish then that I would know that they would be like a lifelong affair because maybe it wouldn't have hurt so much, but middle school was awful. It is for every kid, but it was really bad for me. Um, and so a few seconds ago, I was talking about how sometimes like beautiful childhood memories can be clouded with not so pleasant ones. So I wanted to share one with you that occurred when I was in grade eight. Um, I was attending a Christian school at the time and I was in uh, phys ed class, which as you can imagine, if you're 12 years old and you're overweight, it's not a good time. So um, we were playing basketball and my class was taking turns on and off the court. So we had like benches on the side when you weren't on the court. And I was sitting there at this one time and sometimes we have memories that are frozen in time, like a, a replay, a loop, and this is one of them for me. So there was a classmate of mine who fell. And if I close my eyes, I can see her falling now. And she just kind of grabbed her foot and was in pain, and the class ended abruptly, and they called her parents. And it turns out that she had a broken foot. And so um, the next day, she came to school with a cast, and she had a story to tell, although the story wasn't quite how it happened. And so I don't even know why she said what she did, probably because she wasn't really a popular kid, so she wanted to gain popularity in middle school. And so she told the entire class that she broke her foot because I stepped on it and crushed her with my weight. And I'm sharing this because it's part of the bigger picture of a recurring theme in my life. So I'll get there in a little bit, but for now, imagine what it was like to be 12 year olds and my heart was breaking because all people could see was extra 20 pounds that I carried and not like the fun, spunky person that I was. So after that incident, I was super happy to move to high school. 
because none of the kids from the Christian school were coming with me, so it was like a clean slate. And there was over like 2,000 students in my school, so you kind of just melted into a crowd. And it was a super busy place, and I had tons of friends, and I loved my classes, and things were looking up. Until one day in 1998, my parents set us down and told us we were moving to a place I'd never heard of in New Brunswick. Fortunately, I had heard of New Brunswick because we had been there the previous summer for vacation. And while we were there, my dad heard about a church in Quispamsis um, that was struggling. And he, is, he works two jobs. One, he is a business consultant for five days a week. The other, he's a pastor for seven. So all pastors and their families know it's a full-time job every single day. It's not just Sunday morning. And so his heart was pulled towards this church, and we up and moved. So it was hard, and it completely rocked and upset my world at 16 years old. I was devastated to leave behind my friends. But looking back, I wonder if God orchestrated that move to New Brunswick just for me because I knew what was going on in my heart at the time. I was an unbeliever, and it was really bad, and so I think I could see now, in hindsight, where my life would have gone. And so I'm super glad <laughs> that I'm here. Um, and it was, it was really good to move here, even though I had plans to move back the second I graduated from high school. <laughs> it's almost 10 years now that I've, <laughs> that I've been in New Brunswick. Um, but it was a good thing, too, because it, I felt like it brought our entire family together. Um, I have a really good family, and my parents provided like this beautiful childhood for us where we were loved, protected, and safe, and it was really great. Um, and even though we had magical meals together and all that stuff, um, there was a bit of a disconnect because my older brother and I were much older than my younger brother and sister, and my dad had a long commute to the city every day. So we'd have a family meal, but we weren't really connected. And so when we moved to New Brunswick, we lived in this house in the country. <laughs> and I can't really adequately describe it, but um, when we moved to Newmarket, it was a town. And then when we left, it was a city. And so I was used to city living. And to be in the middle of nowhere with trees everywhere <laughs> instead of buildings and like cricket noises. To this day, I can't stand crickets. They just, I couldn't hear, I couldn't sleep for days. It was awful. And so we had no friends, you know, and so we all were just doing things together. Um, and then when we went to school, we had to travel to St. John, which is about a 30-minute drive from Quispamsis, because at the time, the school system was more advanced than it is here. I think we're probably on par by now. I don't really know. But uh, we had to go to a different school. So when we did make friends, they all lived, you know, 30 minutes away from us. So we spent a lot of time at home. And the church was only five minutes from our house, so our dad was home a lot more. And so we became more connected and more united and the strong, close family that it is now, that we are now. And then after I went to St. John High School, I moved to Fredericton to attend Stu. And this is kind of where my story kind of comes together. Um, in the first year I was living there, I lived in one of the dorms. And so I was able to witness firsthand how many different things were going on that my parents had protected me from. I mean, I, I, I would say my parents were overprotective, but they weren't, like once I could see what was happening. So it was almost as if I sat on a fence for a while and I saw how people lived on one side and how my Christian parents lived and all the Christians I knew lived on the other side. And I had no peace at all and I was totally exhausted. 
So one night, I was laying in my bed, listening to my doormates who were coming back from the bar, and they were very drunk and loud. And so I got up and opened my door, and I said, you know, be quiet, I have an eight o'clock class, I can't sleep, you guys are annoying. And so I was just like, I have a zero piece, and I slammed the door. I mean, this was not abnormal for me <laughs> at the time. And so I went back to my room, and I was just like, oh. And then I heard this voice say, I am peace. And I had the flood of peace wash over me. And they were still being noisy and loud. But it didn't bother me at all. And it's as if in that moment, I felt my heart saying, take this world and give me Jesus. And everything changed in my life. I always said that I didn't feel like sharing my testimony because it's not really concrete or profound. It's just a girl sitting in her dorm room giving her life to Christ. But I've since learned that your testimony isn't just how you come to Christ, it's how you live for Christ as well, which is probably why Brent asked me to speak. So in my second year of university, I met my friend Ryan Calhoun, who asked me to go to church with him one time. And <laughs> it was not like the Baptist church that I was used to. So I left and I was like, what did I walk into? But he kept picking me up to come to church, so I went with him. And then eventually I really liked going, so I would just meet him at church. Um, and so in 2002, at the meeting place, now Christ Central, is where God came alive for me. It wasn't just like words on a page in a book. It wasn't the old hymns that um, we sang in my parents' church. It wasn't the sermons that actually are quite good sermons, but to me at the time were boring, and it was my father. So it's a bit tricky <laughs> um, when you're listening to your dad preach all the time. Um, so... God came alive for me, and the Holy Spirit was alive in me and at work in me. And a couple of years later, um, I met my husband. <laughs> and I went to a Christian concert with some friends, and there was this guy there, and we chatted or whatever. And I didn't think that he would be all that interested in me because at this point in time, I was about 50 pounds overweight. Um, and so we just talked and, you know whatever. And then he, he kept coming back. So <laughs> he kept picking up and like wanting to go out. So we went out. And then um, we dated for about four months. And that same, I think it was that we were dating for, sorry, we were dating for six months. And then four months later, we decided to well, we got married because we didn't feel like wasting time. So <laughs> we, we met in January and then got married that Thanksgiving weekend. Um, and before we met and married, I often wondered why I had friends that weren't, like guy friends that weren't interested in me. And I assumed it was because I was super overweight. But now I think it's because um, it takes a very special man to navigate the life that we live together. And God in all his goodness had set aside the best, the best one for me. So one of my favorite verses is Psalm 16.9, where it says, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. And this has been like a massive theme in our lives. So it's no surprise that even though we planned on waiting five years to have children, we ended up having our first baby a little year after we got married in November, on November 4th. And he was super perfect and beautiful and bald and just adorable. And then two years later, we, met, we had Micah again. Um, and they were such easy babies that I figured that parenting would be snappy and super easy. <laughs> it isn't. <laughs> um, right around the time that Micah was born, I started noticing that my legs looked different. So I thought it was pregnancy because when women are pregnant, sometimes they swell. Um, and I really did. Um, and so after he was born, I noticed that the swelling in my legs didn't go down. And so I went to a doctor, you know, and he told me... Um, 
it's permanent. And I remember this moment again, like it's frozen in time. So I got home from my appointment, and I laid the kids down for a nap. And then I went into her room, and I sobbed, and I sobbed, and I sobbed, and I sobbed, because I looked awful. <laughs> and um, it was heartbreaking. So that's kind of a current, it's current now, because at the time, I was so much smaller. <laughs> and I look back on pictures and think, wow, I thought it was bad then. Like, look at me now. Um, but I'm really glad that my you know, past self couldn't see my future self, because it would have just been even more heartbreaking. Um, so now I'm going to fast forward to when our oldest son, Aiden, was getting ready for kindergarten. His preschool teacher took me aside to tell me that something was kind of different about him. And her, her sweet nature, like she's so sweet, and her concern kind of allowed the words to fall softly on my heart so that when his kindergarten teacher came to me, <laughs> I was ready for what she said. Um, and it didn't take long to figure out what was going on. Our smart little boy who could fix everything, he loves problem solving, but he was having a hard time adjusting to school. And he would throw chairs, scream at the top of his lungs. If he wanted to play with kids, he would like throw rocks or sticks at them because he didn't know how to appropriately get their attention. And so we finally got our answers and Aiden, our oldest son, has autism. And, and, the, and when we were sitting that day to get this diagnosis, I felt like all my hopes and dreams for his life came crashing down because autism is really hard and people don't understand it completely. Um, he looks normal. <laughs> he's not. <laughs> um, he, he's kind of quirky. But you, you spend a lot of time and energy on it because nothing is simple. So for us, things that seem simple for them, it's completely a ton of work um, to just deal with life. Um, we spend a lot of time getting him to concentrate on school and get working in school and learn social behaviors that are appropriate. That's a massive thing for autism. Um, for people with autism is that they don't have social skills at all. So anything that, if you've never noticed he has autism, then we are doing our job <laughs> because it's very hard for him to even say hi to people. Um, and we're still working on it. He's not perfect. Um, so imagine my shock and astonishment when our other son, who is always happy and super bubbly and talks to everybody, he also has autism as well. And so when we found that out, I felt like my dreams for a normal child, you know, came crashing down. Will we ever have grandchildren? I don't know. Will my kids ever be able to hold down a job? I don't know. Um, sometimes when I think of the what-ifs, it's too overwhelming, so I don't try to think of the what-ifs. I remember telling my mom when, you know, Micah was diagnosed, I said, I can't handle two kids with autism. And my mom is a very wise woman, and she said, you already are. And I just thought, oh, yeah, you know, we are. <laughs> we are handling it. And a few years ago, I was writing a, I like to write, so I was writing an um, article for a Christian magazine for autistic children, or like parents with children with autism. And I realized that, you know, even though our lives are full of scheduled therapies and sleep training and social skills training and behavior management and handling situations that arise at school, that if we had waited for five years to have kids, we wouldn't have kids at all. And so God knows what he's doing. Um, and not only that, he, he knew what I would need to handle them and manage them. And so he directed my steps to take what I took at university, um, which is journalism. But 
one of the core things in journalism is like to research like your life depends on it. And um, little did I know it actually would in my case. So shortly after the doctor told me what was happening to my legs was permanent, I decided to do some research. And long story short, after several years of researching and meeting with doctors, I was finally no, wait, I can't talk. <laughs> diagnosed with lipedema last fall. Lipedema is a painful lymphatic disease that allows for fatty deposits to collect in the lower body, arms, stomach, back, everywhere. Um, it cannot be dieted or exercised away. It's a genetic condition passed through women, hormonally triggered at the onset in puberty, and symptoms worsen in childbirth, which is why it accelerated with mica, and they also worsen in menopause, so I had that to look forward to. Um, because it's a lymphatic disease, it also triggers lymphedema. So they're two different things. Um, and lymphedema is caused from damage to your lymphatic system. So here's your Sunday morning science lesson. Lymph <laughs> your lymphatic um, system is responsible for transferring a toxic fluid, which is like a lymphatic fluid, to um, all throughout your body. And it contains um, infection-fighting cells. And so it's not really something that you want to mess with. So with with lipedema, it kind of, everything gets stuck in the bottom. So it's supposed to kind of like circulate through your whole body. And for me, it's just sitting there, um, which is super dangerous. <laughs> and um, so I have both lymphedema and lipedema, and they're both end stages. If you have cancer and it metastasizes to your lymph nodes, then it's not very long until you're, you pass away. And because lipedema is unknown to many doctors, it's actually quite common, but not to this degree. Um, so it's unclear how long a person can live, but it's absolutely terminal. So being faced with the reality of a terminal disease is really hard. I have um, a longtime friend who has been in a wheelchair for a number of years because she has muscular dystrophy. And last Christmas, she was suddenly hospitalized with a brain tumor. And she missed Christmas <laughs> because it just really happened fast. And so afterwards, when she was told that she, you know, they had successfully removed her tumor, she should have been celebrating, but they told her that her tumor was a secondary source and that she was dying of cancer. She's only 37. And so I really wanted to be with my friend Wormatong to sing songs because we used to sing these silly, you know, camp songs together. Um, and I was given the gift of being able to visit her this past summer. She lives in London, Ontario. Um, but instead of sitting down and singing silly songs, we talked about heaven. Um, and we were like, wondering what it would be like. And it would be great to be free of disease. Not, like, neither one of us can walk well, so we talked about how we wouldn't be able to just walk. We could run. Like One of the things I want to do when I die is just run to Jesus like, as fast as I can. Um, and we talked about life and how we've loved to live life. And when our visit was coming to a close, my mom said, it's heartbreaking to see two vibrant girls racked with disease yet full of life. And my friend Lisa replied, it's the Holy Spirit in us. Sometimes when you're feeling overwhelmed with the reality of your situation, it's easy to forget that it's temporary. When the pain is great and medication isn't working like it isn't for me right now, it's easy to focus on the momentary. When I think about my life and all the troubles it has, I can get weighed down about how life is hard and I can focus on that. Or I can remember that it doesn't last forever. Autism is not forever. Lipedema is not forever. Cancer is not forever. Muscular dystrophy is not forever. 
anything that you are, are, are faced with, whether it be a medical crisis, a relationship in trouble, a financial strain, all of which I feel are crushing. <laughs> None of it is forever. The true reality is that we're only here for a little while and life is temporary. There's a song by Building 429 called Where I Belong. I'm not gonna sing it, but part of the song goes like this. So when the walls come falling down on me and when I'm lost in the current of a raging sea, I have this blessed assurance holding me. All I know is I'm not home yet. This is not where I belong. Take this world and give me Jesus. This is not where I belong. So we're not meant to be here permanently. But while we are here, we can have trials of many kinds. I know this. <laughs> but God uses those trials to make us perfect in him and point other people towards Christ. So I'm a very creative person. I love, you know, arts of all kinds. And one day when I was wasting time on Pinterest, <laughs> something caught my eye, and it was this beautiful bowl that was created by a talented potter, of which I have no talent for. But there were cracks inside of it, um, and it looked like the whole bowl was ruined because of these cracks. You couldn't put anything inside of it. It would leak out. And then the next picture showed something really amazing. All the cracks in the bowl were infused with gold. So I did a little bit of research, because that's what I do. And I read about the Japanese art called, I can't pronounce this, kintsugi, which is repairing broken uh, pottery with lacquer that's mixed with powdered gold. And they do this because the Japanese believe it treats each crack and dent as a history of the piece instead of something broken. I really like this idea, but I'd like to take it one step further. So if we're like these bowls, then each time we use our brokenness to reflect Christ so other people will see it, we turn that brokenness into something beautiful. Some of our bowls are more cracked than others, and some are also more, more golden. But it's our God-given responsibility to shine his light and share it with others so that they can receive more and more glory. When we are obedient, are obedient to God, our momentary troubles point others to Christ. Then, as it says in, in 2 Corinthians 4.17, we're achieving for ourselves eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We may never know why we have to suffer the way that we do while we're here on this world, but we may never understand why God allows these things to happen to us. In Hebrews 12, 1-2, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge cloud of witnesses to this life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. While we're here on this earth, it's a temporary home. Enduring things that we don't want to endure, people are watching us. We really are surrounded by a huge cloud of witnesses. And when we keep our eyes on Jesus and we focus on eternal glory, we can suffer through anything. Brent reminded us a few months ago when he was preaching from 2 Corinthians 3 that we will look more like Jesus the more we look at Jesus and not to hide behind our weaknesses because weaknesses are part of the call. And sometimes our weaknesses are our momentary afflictions. I can't say that I love having lipedema because, for one, it's painful. For two, it's really ugly. It's hard to find clothes that fit properly because my body is disproportioned. <laughs> um, and I don't know how to sew, so I can't make my own clothes. It cuts deep because people make comments about my appearance. 
sometimes my kids hear it and it really bothers me because, you know, they don't need to hear that, you know. Um, and also I, say, I can't say I love having autism in our lives because it's exhausting. If you ever wonder why we look so tired, <laughs> it's because we've been up half the night <laughs> with the kid. Um, and my kids are 10 and 12, so they should sleep through the night, but they don't. <laughs> um, we do have moments with them that are completely heartbreaking to deal with. When you get a call from the school and your son has tried to choke someone, it's really hard. Um, but when we look at Jesus, like I know that we don't struggle in vain. When I look to Jesus, I know what lasts forever and what doesn't. And when I look to Jesus, I can be thankful that he's using me through the hardships so that I can handle hard situations. There's a lot of hard places in my life, like a lot of hard things that happen. But um, I know that he's using my story to point other people toward him. That's all. get John and the team to come up. <clears throat> Paul ends 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18 by telling us to fix our eyes on the things that are unseen. To fix our eyes on the things that are unseen. And so the application to all that we've said now is to stare at the unseen. To fix our eyes on those things that are eternal. We might not be able to see them, but Paul says that's where you fix your eyes. The power to persevere in the midst of suffering is to fix our gaze, set our minds, focus our hearts on the unseen realities that God has bought for us in Christ. And Paul lived for the future, and it dramatically shaped how he lived in the present. In Jerusha's life, the circumstance of her suffering has caused her to cast herself on God, and in a way, forced her to focus her gaze on the eternal weight of glory that lies ahead of her. And if that wasn't the case, in just thinking about Jerusha's life, if that wasn't the case, would she have the same desire to reach people and encourage people through her blog? Would she have the same desire to give her life for the kids in this church, in kids' church, and in many kids? Would she have the same desire to see... Uh, relationships built and prayer and worship and see our life group as such a priority. I don't know if she would, but I do know that because she's fixed her gaze on Jesus, because she's fixed her gaze on the things that are unseen, I do know that Lipedema won't have the last say in Jerusalem's life. I do know that the last say will always and only be Christ's. That no matter what suffering she's going through now with lithodema and all the other things going on, she has an eternal weight of glory that lies ahead of her. And Jesus will have the last say in her life. And so what are we living for? What is our gaze fixed on this morning? And us as a church, if we're going to push into all that God's calling us to, if we're going to... Uh, see the prophetic vision that we feel God has given us for this city, for Atlanta, Canada, for the nations. It's going to require hardship. It's going to require sacrifice. And if we then would push through that and persevere in the midst of whatever uh, suffering we might encounter, 
and not hide behind our weakness and not let weakness deter us or worse yet, cause us to despair in the midst of suffering and grow bitter towards God. We must fix our eyes on what lies ahead. We must fix our eyes on what lies ahead. To flip the saying on its head, it's only as we become more heavenly minded that we as a church are going to do any earthly good. We've got to fix our eyes on the things that are unseen. Let's stand. I don't know where you're at uh, in your walk with God this morning. I don't know what suffering or hardship you might be in the middle of, but you need to know that these things are true for you this morning. They're not just true for John Getty and doing great things in the South Pacific. They're not just true for Jerusha and what she's going through. They're true for you this morning, that there is an eternal weight of glory that lies ahead of you as you give your life to Christ and, and suffer and the sacrifices that you might endure in that. There is an eternal weight of glory. And so wherever you're at, I just want to pray for you. And then John and the team are going to lead us and we're going to sing these truths if we can. We're going to sing these truths to God that we have this eternal weight of glory ahead of us. And so, Father, I just pray that you'd come now. We're so thankful for the truth of your word. We're so thankful that your truth cuts through uh, the priorities that we have. We're so thankful that your word cuts through what the world tells us to focus on. Our vision gets cloudy. We thank you that your word cuts through this morning and gives us clarity of sight, that we can see our situation uh, in relation to the promises that you have bought for us. And, and we can have our faith raised and we can be encouraged this morning, even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of hardship, we can fix our eyes on you and be encouraged this morning. And so I just pray, Father, that you'd come now by your spirit to those who are suffering, to those who are in the midst of hardship, whether it's illness, whether it's physical, whether it's relational, whether it's emotional, you're the God of all comfort who comforts us. And so we pray that you would come now and bring comfort to our hearts, to our minds, to our emotions, that same peace that washed over Jerusha in that uh, dorm room so many years ago. We pray that you'd come and wash over us by your Spirit, Father. We pray that you'd be drawing people to yourself, even in the midst of their hardship, when they've turned their backs on you and they've cursed you because of the way their life has gone. We pray that this morning you'd turn them around and you'd bring peace to their hearts. In Jesus' name, we pray that you would encourage us as a church to do all that you've called us to, no matter what hardship we might face, because we want to see that eternal weight of glory. We want to see all tribes, nations, and tongues worshiping you. We fix our eyes on what you've bought for us through Jesus, and we say you are worthy of it all. You are worthy of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.